please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. This has been a goal to get to in this book. Chapter 13. If you've studied the Bible in this book at all, you know about 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of God's love. As I mentioned last week, some consider this to be in a, uh, a poetic sense, Paul's greatest writing in the Scriptures. We've seen throughout this book that he has come with exhortation and admonition and rebuke one after the other all the way up to this chapter. And now, out of nowhere, we get the beautiful, inspiring chapter 13. Listen as I read through this chapter together. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here today because we have been touched by love. We've been touched by God's love. A love so amazing, so divine, so overwhelming that we just stand in and and in awe and wonder at how you could have loved us so. But we learn from a chapter like this that the love of God is not to, to stop in us. It is to go through us. So Lord, give us wisdom this day as only you can do. Give us humility, a willingness to recognize that what we think may not be right. Lord, we pray that Your Holy Spirit will endow upon us a wisdom from above, especially as it relates to the greatest of these, 
love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to start, why don't we begin with a one-question pop quiz. It is important for us as we study a topic like this to know a little bit of Greek. If you've studied this chapter before, then you know that there are four Greek words for love. And if we don't know which one Paul is using, we are going to walk out of here perhaps even more misguided than when we came. So if you know it, say it together. What Greek word did Paul use for love in this chapter? Agape. 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 This is not the word eros referring to physical or sexual love. It's not the word storgi, referring to the family kind of love that exists between a parent and a child or for relatives. And it's not phileo, referring to friendship and brotherly love. This is where the city of Philadelphia gets its name, as you know, the city of brotherly love. This is the word agape, which goes beyond all of the other loves. This love reaches beyond the likely relationships and applies to all people, including strangers, including the unlovely, including those who might hurt us in return, including even our enemies. Having just celebrated Memorial Day, I am reminded that this is the type of love that Sergeant Gabriel Derue had for the people of Iraq. He looked forward to going back to that country to do missions work. But instead, God so had it that He would love us in the greatest way, and that is to lay down His life so that others might be free. That's agape love. If you study this word and its definition, you understand that this, this love is an intentional love. It's voluntary. It is self-sacrificing. There's no expectation of benefit in return. This is the kind of love that was exemplified by God and through others throughout the New Testament. One of the examples that Jesus gave was that of the Good Samaritan. That was agape love. This love has an overwhelming moral sense to it, far stronger than just romance or friendship. This kind of love defies even the instinct to preserve oneself at the expense of others. In a sense, this love makes no sense. It truly is divine. As we see in 1 John 4, 8, God is agape. God is love. This is the John 3, 16 kind of love that moved God to save us from our sins at the expense of His only Son, Jesus Christ. There are amazing words to be read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great agape, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you were saved. As far as believers go, this is the type of love that is first listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. Love, joy, peace, etc. 
It's with this word definition that we begin to see that 1 Corinthians 13, which we just read, is a detailed portrait of the ultimate godly love. Far greater than romance and friendship. Far greater than just simple kindness. This is the supreme and everlasting love of God come down to man and through man. So that understanding, let's work our way through chapter 13. You'll see that this chapter is divided into three major sections. First we see in verses 1 to 3, the importance of love. And then in verses 4 to 7, we see a definition of love. And then for the rest of the chapter, we see the eternality of love. (coughs) So let's look at the importance of love in verses 1 to 3. This is where we ask the question, where does love rank? on the list of godly morals and virtues. How important is it? How does it compare in context with the amazing spiritual gifts that Paul just talked about in the prior chapter? Verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. As we're going to see in the next chapter, there were some in the Corinthian church who had the gift of tongues the ability to miraculously speak in another language so that they could minister the truth of God to others. And these believers were proud of it. Not only were they proud of it, they were misusing the ability. They were counterfeit abilities. It was causing problems in the church. And it's in that context that we realize right here at verse 1 that Paul is getting very personal when he goes straight for the juggler of their pride and arrogance and says, without love, your tongues are nothing but noisemakers. Even if you could speak miraculously in some heavenly, angelic language, it's still just a loud, irritating gong. That's the picture he gives. If we do not have love. Clark's commentary quotes Josiah Gregory as saying this about verse 1. People of little religion are always noisy. He who has not the love of God in man filling his heart is like an empty wagon coming violently down a hill, making a great noise because there is nothing in it. That's what Paul is talking about here. Verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy... And know all mysteries and knowledge. That is quite a statement. The Old Testament prophets had one mission. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, a gift of love. The Old Testament prophets had one mission, and that was to tell the people of God whatever God had revealed to them. In the New Testament, that mission has not changed. We are responsible to tell people all that God has said about the past, about the present, and about the future. And Paul says that even if we could explain all of the complexities, and if we could explain all of the mysteries of Scripture, and even if we knew every uh, scriptural truth contained in the Word, without love, it would be a a worthless heap of facts. And then Paul raises the bar even higher. He goes on to, in the verse to say, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, you recognize he, he's referring to Jesus' comment in Matthew chapter 17, if you have faith 
the size of a mustard seed. You will say from this to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Can you imagine having, imagine having faith that powerful? Not just the faith to perhaps see someone healed of an illness, not just the faith to make it through a trial, but the faith to move mountains. Paul says, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. Totally insignificant, unworthy of attention, of no use, nothing. This is strong language, and it's important that we recognize that Paul is not exaggerating to make a point. He is making the point, and that is there is nothing to be had without love. Verse 3, he raises the bar again by pointing to the greatest possible philanthropic endeavors. He says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What did Jesus say to the young rich man? This is where this is coming from most likely. What did Jesus say to the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19? He said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Paul says that even if he went to that extreme in his compassion ministry, even if he were benevolent to the last dollar, if it were void of love, it would profit him nothing. No gain, no reward, an empty wallet, much like a, a cracked and dry bottle in the middle of a parched desert. There would be nothing worth value in it. He then takes it to the furthest conceivable extreme and says that even if he were a martyr by fire, if he did not have love, it would profit him nothing. No reward, nothing good, worthless. Can you imagine the jaw-dropping shock this would have on the Corinthian church or any church? It should have the same effect on us if our perception of love is incorrect. All the incredible things that he just listed are a waste if they are without agape, without love. This set of religious comparisons aggressively challenges our definition of what spiritual maturity is, of what it means to be a great Christian. Paul says, beware lest the things you think are so religiously important amount to nothing. Not just less than you thought, not just a little, but nothing. Beware lest you take this journey, this religious journey, and arrive at the wrong destination. We learn one of life's most significant lessons here. It is not just what we do, but why we do it that matters. They're, they both matter. And this truth understood and put into practice radically impacts every aspect of our lives. It forces us to recognize that coming here on Sunday morning is not enough. It's why we go that also matters. Going to work and providing for our spouse and our children is not enough. It's the heart attitude that also matters. Serving in the church, giving of our finances, working in kids' ministry, serving in the nursery, 
cleaning the bathrooms, etc., is not enough. It must be fueled by love. The catalyst of every good deed, whether at church or at home, at work, wherever we are, every good deed must be catalyzed by love. Doing the right thing is not enough. Matter of fact, it might be nothing. This truth goes straight for the throat of legalism. Paul has given the church one of the most critical of all cautions. Woe to the Christian who does the right thing for any reason apart from love for God and their neighbor. Not a sense of duty, not to achieve a sense of righteousness, certainly not for personal gain and certainly not for salvation. Paul has been addressing the bitter root of jealousy and selfishness all throughout this book. Yes, there is a sense of obligation and there is a sense of righteousness and blessing that comes with doing what is right, but they are not the all-sufficient reason for doing right. <clears throat> These first three verses beg one observation. Love is supremely mandatory. And that begs one question. What then is love? <clears throat> Pardon my voice this morning. Too much partying last night at the Helens. <laughs> you see, it's one thing for us to all to agree that love is the most important thing in the world, but it is another for us to agree upon what love is. Matter of fact, there are countless unbelievers, people who deny Jesus Christ and His Word, who would be the first to tell you that love is the most important virtue. But they and Paul are not talking about the same thing. What is love? We identified the definition of agape love earlier, but now Paul is going to put this into real world terms for us. Section two in this chapter, verses four to seven, we find the definition of love, the practical, the applicable definition of love. Paul gives us 15 behavioral attributes here. These are not just 15 static characteristics of love. These are 15 actions. They're 15 behaviors. This is what love is based on what love does. We learn here that love is primarily a verb, not just a noun or potentially an adjective. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Notice this next pair. Love does not brag, there's the action, and is not arrogant, there's the attitude. Does not act unbecomingly, that is, inappropriately, unseemly, rude, as some of your Bibles may say. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. The King James Version says, is not easily provoked. The ESV says, irritated does not take into account a wrong suffered. That means we don't keep track of those hurts that we experience and who does them. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things. There's a reference to, reference to how much love is willing to carry. Believes all things. In a sense, we, we believe the best. It hopes all things, 
meaning that it has a vision for victory. Nothing is beyond the grace of God. There's a sense of you can do it by grace. It endures all things. There's the reference to how long we will carry whatever we're bearing. You don't need me to point out that this is a passage that we as believers would all do well to read and reflect on and submit to often. This text is one of the North Stars in Scripture. It's the 98.6 on the thermometer. It's a, it's a yardstick of love and it's a mile high. We see here that agape love is a massive action word. 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Perhaps you're like me in that sometimes I mistake I mistake saying I love you for doing I love you. I sometimes think that because I say I love you, it means I have loved. That can be true, but it's not necessarily true. Ask any family member, any spouse, any friend, anyone close to you, would you rather I tell you I love you or do these four verses? And the answer is a million times obvious. These four verses paint a breathtaking portrait of love. They're a portrait, a perfect portrait of Jesus. A portrait that is to be displayed in you and me to all those who look at us. Time does not allow us to do a deep study on each of these 15 attributes of love today. So I'd like to challenge you to walk through those verses on your own this week. Or even with a spouse or friend or perhaps with one of your children or with a parent and apply these five study application points that I'm about to give you. Apply them to each of these attributes. These five steps are written out for you on the back of your salt starter in your bulletin. And the first step to apply to each attribute is simply list synonyms, similar words. You can pull out a dictionary or a Bible dictionary, a thesaurus, or look at other Bible translations, or you can even just work with whatever comes to mind. For example, two synonym phrases for patient, the first attribute in the list, come to my mind, and they are willing to wait at length, or not rushed or hurried toward others. If we look at other Bible translations, we also get words like long-suffering, where we begin to get a little deeper sense of the word. That it's, it, where, it's this is where we learn that it's there's not just a sense of sitting around and waiting on others, but a sitting around and waiting even when it hurts. Look at step two, list antonyms. Those are the opposites. Again, this simply pulls our mind into the text a little so we can give this some of the thought and meditation that it so deserves. So list antonyms. Words like impatient, easily frustrated when others don't move as fast as I'd like them to, quick, to be intolerant, quick to be angered by the slowness of others. Step three, answer this question. Who do I tend to fail this point toward? My spouse, my children, a coworker, a neighbor, a relative. And the follow-up question is, how do I fail and in what ways? Now we're letting the text be personal. 
it's easy to study this topic from the perspective of the topic, or to study this from the perspective of the whole world, or even for all Christians. But that's almost nothing to use Paul's word compared to the necessity of studying the word for ourselves, for my life and the way that I live and the way I have behaved recently. So let's honestly answer the question, who do I tend to fail this point toward, this attribute? Number four, what would the proper behavior be? There's a very important principle at play here. It is not just enough to identify and stop doing what's wrong. We need to identify and start doing what's right. Don't just stop yelling. Start saying kind things. Don't just stop being angry. Be sweet. Don't just stop lusting. Be an advocate for moral purity. Don't just stop being lazy. Develop a reputation for being a hard worker. We get the idea. Identify proper behavior. What can I do intentionally to replace my bad habit with a good one? Number five, if you dare, go and discuss it with that person. If appropriate, go to them. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them to hold you accountable and to offer their perspective. And when needed, we can offer an apology and share that God is teaching us a better way of living through the Word. Now, lest I just be a a preacher, teacher, and not a doer, I went to my wife this, this past week with these five points, and I humbly asked her, if you could pick one thing out of this list of 15 that you would like to see me improve on, what would it be? Without hesitation, the first words off her lips were, well, I see two things. (laughs) And then she listed three. And then she touched on how they relate to the fruit of the Spirit. This is when I realized there's a point 5a. Let them say everything they want. Remember, what's the first definition of love Paul gave in this list? Patience. I needed to hear every word that my wife lovingly and graciously said. It only took her about 60 seconds to say it, and I thank the Lord for it. I'm a better man because of it. I think we'll all be surprised at the loving response that we'll get from people when we humbly approach them. Granted, we may not always get a sweet response. In those times, let's just accept it and recognize God is testing our love. But more often than not, I suspect we'll be refreshed by the love that this type of communication pulls out of the other person. Like all of us have seen this before. Grace tends to promote grace. Love tends to promote love. Now, what are the odds that we'll all walk out of here and engage in this process this week? Three words come to mind. Not very likely. So let's make this realistic. Will you join me this, list, this, this week in reading and praying over this list and just choosing one characteristic and walking it through these five steps? Or perhaps better yet, let someone close to you choose one for you and walk through these steps with you. Otherwise, what have we gained in today, today's time in the Word? What does a little more information accomplish? At best, as Paul said a few chapters ago, it puffs us up. It just makes us arrogant. The whole goal of reading the Word, of coming to church, is change. Change. 
<clears throat> change toward the beauty and the rightness of Christ-likeness? Why not humble ourselves and let the Word of God change for the better our private lives, our families, our marriages, our friendships, our work relationships, etc. <clears throat> what about our witness to those who don't know Christ? Perhaps there's someone in our lives who has irritated and bothered us and we have returned it to them. What a testimony of the gospel. How much better to take love to them and demonstrate what God has done in our own heart than to say, don't you know? Don't you realize you need? Uh, let the gospel begin in us. And do we need any further motivation after pondering the first three verses? Surely we are recognizing afresh the mandatory importance of God's love flowing through us, especially in our religious lives, especially as followers of Christ. This is the way of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. As it says in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we are Christians, then let's act like Christians by the Spirit. Those are three critical words. By the Spirit. If you're living apart from the grace of God, if you have not yet called on Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, your friend and your King, the only one who can forgive you and give you eternal life, then won't you do it today? The book of Romans clearly says to repent of sin and to acknowledge the free gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans tells us to acknowledge the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says, whoever will call upon Him, whoever will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is a clear promise. There's no ambiguity in you will be saved. As we studied in past weeks, when a person does this, then God Himself in the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within that person. How amazing that God does not choose to dwell in the building of the church. He doesn't dwell in the temple. He doesn't dwell in the tabernacle as we saw in recent chapters. We become the temple of God. And He not only indwells us, but He then empowers us. That's what it means when Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you aren't a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, I invite you to become one today. This is where we find the truths and the power of what we've just read in this chapter. We find what love truly is and it becomes a part of us and how we live and how we grow. Thank God for the grace, the divine strength, the divine enablement He gives us to do what is right for the right reason. It's one thing to try to live up to 1 Corinthians 13 our own, in our own strength, which is impossible. It's another to experience God working in us and growing us 
to live this kind of love. So let's consider a follow-up question. Who do we have a responsibility to show this kind of love to? And let's go straight to the answer which lies in the two greatest commandments. They're right here behind me. We love God with everything we've got and we love our neighbor just like we would ourselves. Matthew 22. So seeing that the greatest command is to love God, I'd like to challenge you to walk through that, that list in verses four to seven and apply it to God. Now yes, this was probably and primarily intended to be a way of treating one another, but we're commanded to love God first. And think about it, do we need to be patient with God? Absolutely. Not with his imperfections, not with his being tardy, but with his timing, with his will for our lives, patience with his provision, patience with his healing, patience with, with his direction, etc. And, and what about, what about uh, do we need to be kind toward God? Absolutely. And acts of goodness to him are how we worship Him. They're one of the ways we worship Him. We, we give Him sweet time communing in prayer with Him. Our offerings that come from thankful hearts are acts of kindness toward God. Our delight in His Word, Psalm 1, is an act of kindness toward Him. And of course, he says that whatever we do to the least of humanity, we have done to Him. We quickly realize that every one of these points in verses 4 to 7 should ultimately be done as unto the Lord. Lord, help us to know how to love others with these verses and ultimately to love you. Let's continue in verse 8. This is section 3, the eternality of love. It's everlasting nature. Verse 8, love never fails. But there, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there, are gifts, if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like, like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. There is much that could be said here, but let me, let me simply say that this is a progression of thought here. They're all pointing to the same thing. It's a, there's a progression of purpose in this. There is a beginning and an end to many things in life and in this world. There is a path from immaturity to maturity, from young to old, from imperfect to imperfect as we go for, through this life and into the next and into the presence of Jesus. Things are going to change, but it is essential to know that there are a few things that will not change, and one of them is love. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is supreme. And of course, that is, that is not to eliminate the need for faith and hope. These verses simply place them in, the, these, they place these virtues in order. It, they, it prioritizes them. It shows that one lends direction to the others. How sad a state in the church when our faith train runs off the track of love. Two weeks ago when Mark and a few other of us 
went to the expositional preaching conference in Olympia. We drove six times under the I-5 overpass where that Amtrak train derailed a few months back and killed a number of people and injured so many others. That is a picture of faith without love. And how sad a state when hope in God and His promises and His benefits precedes and supersedes our love for Him. What human relationship thrives when one party is simply in it to get something out of the other? Friendships like that don't last long. Marriages like that don't last long. How much better when my wife and I have agape love for each other and then receive the overflow of blessings and hope and faith and trust in each other that comes as a result of such deep, true commitment, such deep, true love. How much better when our relationship as parents is not anchored in teaching our children to do the right thing, but to do it for the right reason. It is not enough for us parents to be right. 1 John 4, 7, 8, which Mark read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's why we keep looking back to the cross. It's why we, we, we remember the Lord's table. Every time we look back at the love of God, not just the sacrifice of God, but the reason, the agape, it inspires us and guides us and empowers us to then do what is right for the right reason. Listen to Colossians 3.14. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That has been Paul's heart cry all throughout this letter to the church of Corinth. That they would be one in Christ. That they would be united for the gospel. Our portrait of love is further beautified with the understanding that godly love is the perfect bond of unity in our marriage, in our home, in our workplace, in the church, in this world. What great inspiration and truth we receive from 1 Corinthians 13 and the rest of God's Word. Now let's change gears for a minute, a few minutes here now. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are somewhat of a series in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We studied chapter 12 last week where Paul talked in a very broad sense about everyone in the church bringing their spiritual gifts together to function as one unit for the blessing and sake of the gospel, for the blessing and sake of the church. They were to function as one like a body. And what an excellent example, the human body. Then here in chapter 13, Paul, as we've seen, has launched into how love is supremely necessary with those gifts. And in chapter 14, he goes back into the gifts, 
only this time to focus on the mechanics of the gifts, particularly speaking in tongues. Now, we're going to cover chapter 14 today. And there is a reason I only left about 10 minutes for this subject. I know my pay grade, if you know what I mean. There are many questions surrounding the gifts, particularly the miraculous gifts, such as speaking in tongues, having the instant ability to speak in another language so that you might edify others, so that in particular you might bring the gospel to unbelievers. I tried three times to write this portion of the sermon and realized it was going to take weeks to finish the thought. So we aren't going to get into detailed study of this. But unless I am directed otherwise by my fellow elders, I will study this subject in this chapter in greater, greater detail with you when I come back into the pulpit after Mark preaches for a couple months. But for now, I want to simply read this chapter since it flows with the prior two chapters. We'll see the importance of the gifts. We'll see the importance of love in the ministry in the church. We want to, I want to read through this now also since next week is when we will wrap up this 12-week series in 1 Corinthians with chapters 15 and 16. So for now, follow along as I read and close with chapter 14. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, let me just quickly clarify here on this first verse, and then I'll finish reading the chapter. We understand that while Paul has taught that love is supremely necessary to all the spiritual gifts, he was not putting down the spiritual gifts. He was not diminishing their value and importance in the church. He was simply prioritizing them under love. So lest anyone take chapter 13 to mean that the gifts aren't needed or aren't important in the church, Paul comes right out in chapter 14 and says, Pursue love, love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now again, chapter 12 taught us, Paul was very urgent on this matter of helping the church to recognize one gift is not imp more important than the other. Stop taking in pride. Stop taking pride in what you are doing in the church. Everyone is necessary, especially the less becomely. They have even all the greater importance, giving the illustration of our internal organs. Yes, the heart isn't pretty, but it's important. The lungs, the stomach, etc. They're not pretty, but they are vitally important and all the more necessary and appreciated. Again, the Corinthian church had a problem with their pride in the gifts. And Paul nipped it in the bud. But here, he seems to be saying that prophecy is better. That is not the case. This is easily clarified when we understand that the Corinthian church had blown the gift of speaking in tongues way out of proportion. And Paul was telling them here to correct their emphasis. What they really need to correct, needed to correct this imbalance was prophecy. And what is prophecy? Paul knew they would ask. Notice the very specific de definition he gives in verse 3 when we get there. So continuing in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies 
speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will, it prof what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you were saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. If I thank God, excuse me, I thank God, I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. 
Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. He's talking about orderliness here. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now, I would think that those verses would answer almost every question about the mechanics of speaking in tongues. Nearly every question about speaking in tongues that we could think of, except can we and should we speak in tongues today? Come back in October and we'll do our best to answer that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for giving us your Spirit who helps us to understand the Word of God and who not only helps us to understand but helps us to honor and to obey. Lord, we have come here this morning because we need to change. Thank you that you have given us the words of truth by which we can change for the better. Lord, help us not to be forgetful of what you have taught us today. Help us to be not only hearers, but doers of the word. May those who see us this week know that we have been to church. May they know that we have been touched by something supernatural when they see the love of God in us and through us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for each other. And we have the privilege of worshiping and growing and serving and fellowshipping together as a church family. Lord, help us to grow as one body. And may love be our purpose and our motivation, our fuel for such growth. And Lord, finally, I ask if there is even one here who does not have the Spirit of God in them, enlightening the Word of God and empowering them to do what is right for the right reason, I pray that they will come to an understanding of such truth today, that they will repent of their sins and look to Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. May they recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through you. It's because you were rich in mercy and because you had such great agape 
that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and to be resurrected again so that any who believe would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.